this is functionally illiterate. I'm Ryan. And I'm Zach. This is going to one day be a podcast about books. Um, I am reading Indian mythology, tales, symbols, and rituals from the heart of the subcontinent by Devdut Patanik. Uh, and I read Myths of the Hindus and Buddhists by Ananda K. Kumaraswamy and Sister Nivedita. So yeah, we are covering Hindu mythology today. So do you think <laughs> they were advanced enough to know in vitro fertilization? Because I got another story here that suggests in that possible. In vitro fertilization. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not familiar enough with in vitro fertilization to know the specifics of exactly how it works. So maybe there was a primitive form of it. Gandhari's children from the Mahabharata. Mm -hmm. The sage Vyasa had blessed Gandhari that she would bear a hundred sons. Unfortunately, Gandhari gave birth to a ball of flesh as hard and cold as metal after two years of pregnancy. Distraught, she approached Vyasa, who asked Gandhari to cut the ball of flesh into a hundred pieces and place each piece in a jar of clarified butter. Vyasa then chanted hymns and blessed the pots. Nine months later, the pots were broken. In each pot, there was a male child. Thus, the hundred sons of Gandhari, the Kauravas, were born. Yeah, I don't think that's what that is. <laughs> I just... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't, and maybe this is a bias on my part, but I tend to read uh, these stories more as as psychologically symbolic, Mm -hmm. not scientifically symbolic. Mm -hmm. You know, like when I read that, I don't think, oh, she literally gave birth to a thing and that thing had to be cut up. You know, like she literally expelled an egg and then they took that egg and they multiplied it and these jars were like, petri dishes or they were you know some sort of container in which to fertilize and to grow a fetus and then eventually they were born that's you know i that's just not how i read it it's more like she gave birth to some immaterial concept Mm -hmm. that for the sake of her own continuance had to be split up outside of her you know and i i'd have to think harder on what that might be i don't uh I don't know enough familiarity with like those characters to really know what they might represent. So as far as coming up with what that actually means, I don't, I don't have the information in front of me to do that, but to read that and think, Oh, this is a, an ancient person's metaphorical scientific explanation. Like that just seems silly to me. Right. Um, yeah, no, especially this, this since final chapter gets really weird, especially <laughs> since like, what I mean, what? How would you do that in clarified butter? I don't know. You know like I, don't, I, I really don't know. I thought it was interesting that it was clarified butter because yeah. I know that that's unique to India. Like yeah. it originated there yeah, yeah, yeah. or around there. Yeah, but like, I just don't see how that's a metaphor for some like. And here's the other thing: as as long as science has been practiced as what we recognize as science, mm-hmm. it's been very anti-metaphor. <laughs> they yeah. don't. They, you, you write exactly what you did, not a metaphor of what you did. You know, when you start doing that, you get more into like alchemy, which was, was very was specifically at one point viewed as a form of science. Yeah. But was very specifically not 
uh, a material science. Mm. It was a philosophical science. The material was the metaphor. Okay. And sometimes you would carry out the literal experiments as a sort of philosophical experiment, but I don't think that's what the Indians were doing. I've got a few stories here that might seem a little out, less outlandish to you. Okay. So this one was suggested to mean that probably human sacrifice was, was probably not unknown in the Vedic culture. At one point. Oh, that seems pretty obvious. The sacrifice of Sunna Shepas from the Mahabharata. Mm-hmm. King Harishandra wanted a son so desperately that he promised Varuna, the sea god, that if he could only become a father, he would sacrifice his son in the 16th year of his life. The son was born and 16 years passed, but Harishandra could not bring himself to sacrifice the boy. Infuriated, Varuna struck Harishandra with dropsy, which I didn't know what that was. I looked it up. It's edema. Mm -hmm. So the king begged for mercy, and a compromise was reached. Varuna agreed to the sacrifice of any 16-year-old Brahmani boy. Only one Brahmana agreed to part with his son. Sunashepas, but only in exchange for a hundred cows. The lad was brought to the sacrificial altar. When Vishwamitra, the presiding priest, realized that the sacrificial beast was a human, he was horrified. He taught the boy a hymn to appease Varuna and escape this fate. At the appointed hour, no priest was willing to tie the boy to the sacrificial post. Again, the boy's father agreed to do the needful for a price. Then it was time to behead the boy. Again, the boy's father agreed to do so for a price. Sunashepas wept, but no one heard his cry. So he began chanting the hymn to Varuna. So melodious was his voice that the devas descended from the celestial regions and stopped the sacrifice. Vishwamitra was made the foster father of the boy who was blessed by Indra. The gods declared they would never again accept human sacrifice. Suggesting that they did before this happened. Uh, so historically speaking, human sacrifice was performed in India. Yeah. As as late as 1812, well, I want to say, uh, when the British were occupying, they actually had to forcefully stop a specific village from sacrificing people Oof. because they kept doing it. And the British were like, no, we don't do that. And the Indians are like, you don't do that. We do that. We do that. OK, um, but they were like kidnapping people from other villages to do it. They weren't sacrificing their own people. Because you'd run out pretty fast. Yeah. No, they were taking other people. And though, like those villages complained to the occupying British, hey, all our people keep going missing. Do something about it. If you want to be in charge, fucking be in charge. Work, you know? And then British were like, all right, we'll look into it. And they found this village was just sacrificing a bunch of people. Jesus. Okay. Uh, I've got another story that talks about a uh, once common practice called levirate. Do you know what that is? It does not sound familiar, but... So this story is called The Children of Vichy Treviria from the Mahabharata. Mm-hmm. Vichy Treviria died, leaving behind two childless widows, Ambika and Ambalika. So Vich- Vichy Trevira's mother, Satyavati, called the sage Vyasa to do the needful. He went to Ambika, who shut her eyes while they made love. As a result, she bore a blind son called Dirtarashtra. Vyasa then went to Ambalika, who turned pale when she saw his austere visage. 
Pandu, the child she bore, was pale and sickly. Satyavati asked Vyasa to stay and father a healthier child. This time the two widows did not oblige, instead sending their maid, who made love without any fear or disgust. She bore a perfect son called Vidura. When Satyavati learned that the widows had sent a maid in their place, she was angry. She tried to force the widows, but Vyasa told her to stop. Such things are not to be done by force, he said. Mm-hmm. So, levirate is the practice of the wife of a man who is either dead or impotent to have sex with another man to bear children. Yes. Well, and Vyasa is the grandfather of the Pandaras, the winning side of that war. Mm. And that's how they came into existence. Okay. Um, I always, I can't pronounce it. The, the D one you just said. Uh, Dhritarashtra. Dhritarashtra, yeah. Um, he was the main... The uh, blind an- son. Yeah, antagonist in that war because uh, his son was considered unfit to be king because he becomes king, but he's blind. Uh-huh. Uh, his son's considered unfit, so the people, including his court officials, suggest passing the throne instead to, of his son to his nephew, who is... The, the child of the uh, the other kid born from the pale. I can't uh, remember his name either. The other one was called uh, Pandu. Pandu. Um, so giving it to Pandu's son. And he was the pale, sickly one. Yeah. His his kids are the four, uh, you know, Arjuna and his, his three brothers. And... That's sort of the root of the conflict is that as a king, he's very emotional. So, I mean, he's blind, but mm-hmm. like his real fault, I guess the, the blindness is sort of the physical manifestation of the internal fault, which is that he really just kind of takes the advice of whoever gives him any. Oh, no. And so That's like, terrible, yeah, he's, he's, he's. <laughs> He's literally blind. Yeah. Because he's also emotionally blind. Like, uh, he can't tell when someone is giving him bad advice. And he loves his son. Yeah. Too much. Like, he would do anything for his son. But he's a sort of weak-willed guy, and so his son's like, hey, Dad, we should do this. And so he does it. And then he feels really bad about doing it. But his son was like, we should do this. Yeah. And yeah. so, like, in, in one of the things, the the leader of the, the Pandavas is a known... A gambling addict and is really bad at it and so one of the ways that they're like oh we can con them like out of their part of the inheritance is uh we'll challenge him to a gambling match and he'll have to accept because of his honor like that's part of one of the nightly rules is you can't deny a challenge to a fight and you can't deny a challenge to a gambling game which is a weird rule to me but you can't do what if someone challenges you to a game of dice yeah you can't say no it is. It is. Well, like in Pokemon, sort of. It's, it's dishonorable <laughs> like, to say no. You, I saw you. We have to battle. <laughs> right. Well, if someone says, "Hey, play me in a game of dice," I'm challenging you. You it's can't like, go. Okay. No, nah, I don't have time. Like you have to be like, <laughs> "Yep, okay." Name the time and place. We'll do it. Um, and so they're going to take advantage of this guy that they know to be this horrible gambler, and they build this gambling hall. Mm-hmm. They get. They find the best gambler that they know, and they're like, "You're going to challenge him." 
and so that he just keeps getting higher and higher stakes. Eventually, like he bets him and his brothers into slavery, loses. Then he bets his wife, loses. My God. Like, and there there comes this funny scene where they take his wife, and she's like, "By what right are you taking me?" And they're like, "Your husband lost you in a gambling match." And she's like, "Explain to me exactly what happened." And what happened was first he had bet his brothers and himself, which in light of the fact that this guy's a gambling addict, it is better to bet yourself than your wife, you know, because at least you're gambling with your own bullshit and not, not hers. your wife. Yeah. Um, but she gets out of it by saying, how does he have any claim to me as a wife? If he himself is already a slave, he can't then gamble me. That doesn't work. And then everyone there's like, yeah, that checks out. Okay, you're good. You're good to go. You're good. You're right. <laughs> so basically, after he bet himself into slavery, everything he said after that was bullshit because he didn't own anything anymore because he was a fucking slave. Fantastic. Um, but that's the part where Ditra Thrastra, whatever his name was. Dirtarastra. Dirtarastra. That's where he gets weak and is like, oh my God, like, one of the four brothers, Arjuna, is like the greatest warrior ever. Mm-hmm. His charioteer is Krishna. Mm-hmm. who is the embodiment of Vishnu. You know, it's like, you can't fight that guy. He'll win. Yeah. And he just gets terrified all of a sudden. He's like, oh my God, they're going to come back and take revenge. They're going to slaughter everybody. Like, we really fucked up. And so he just like begs forgiveness, forgives all the debts. Like, please just pretend like this didn't happen and sends them away. So they don't have to pay any of the debts that they incurred in this gambling, including being slaves now. And then the son finds out. And I was like, dad, you fucking idiot. Like, we wasted all that time. Now they think we're these deceitful assholes, which they were. Yeah. But like, they still have all their stuff. And now we look stupid. (laughs) And the dad's just like, I'm sorry. Like, I really, I think that was a bad idea. We shouldn't have done it. And then his son just keeps talking him into these horrible ideas, really personifying a, why that guy shouldn't be King now, because he's really just taking bad advice from everybody that's giving him bad advice. Yeah. And then backing out of it when he realizes it's bad, which is not what you want a king to do. And why his son shouldn't be king, because he's a backstabbing piece of shit. Who's giving bad advice. Right. And yeah. if he's giving bad advice, he's, he's not going to take good advice. Nah. And so that's kind of where the whole war comes from, is that everyone who knows anything is like, you really ought to be handing this off to your nephew. The war that the anti deverans alleged was an Atlantean alien war. That one. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And Arjuna was somehow like the chief engineer of that <laughs> nuclear <laughs> missile. Yeah. I've got a, I've got another story here. Oh boy. Uh, that suggests that sex hospitality was, uh, not unknown in ancient India. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is called, Ogavati's obedience from the Mahabharata. Mm-hmm. Sudarshana had asked his wife, Ogavati, to please his guests in every way. While he was away, a mendicant, which is a beggar, mm-hmm. arrived at their doorstep. Instead of alms, which is which means food or, or money, instead of instead of asking for food or money, he asked for sex. He was like, hey, Ogavati, I, w- I want I want some sexual favors. And she was like, Okay. I was told to do that, so... So while the two were having intercourse, Sudarshana returned, and he called out to his wife. He was like, honey, I'm home. And she said, I'm busy satisfying the desire of our guest. And and he was like, okay, carry on. I'll wait till you're done. And uh, the beggar uh, turned out to be Dharma. Dharma 
manifest. Mm -hmm. And he was pleased with the couple and blessed them for upholding the social law. Yeah. (laughs) So there's a ritual in India. Now, I don't, I can't specifically claim that this is Hindu because I don't actually know. And Mm -hmm. I don't know the name of it. Mm -hmm. But the process is uh, basically... Everyone shows up, male and female, mm-hmm. <clears throat> uh, shows up with a vest, and they put their vest in a basket. There's a basket for the men, there's a basket for the women. And then they all draw vests, and you just have sex with the person whose vest you draw. Now, where it gets a little weird for me, looking outside of that culture... You are a Catholic. Uh, I mean, just even as like an American, sure. uh, a member of Western civilization, sure. there are family members in this ritual together. Uh-huh. You could draw your mother's vest. And have incestuous and, relations. And you were not only permitted, but encouraged to still participate. And that's why it's like it's not just a Catholic thing where I'm like, this is I'm not just some Catholic prude. It's like, Ooh, <laughs> weird. You know, like there are plenty of cultures that have have orgiastic <laughs> rituals, including some Christian ones. Sure. Um Sorry. but it's 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 the idea that this this erotic ritual transcends even familial relationships. Yeah. So the, like that story seems tame yeah. by comparison yeah. because She's not related to that person. Mm-hmm. But if she were, she would still be expected to do that. If her brother had come and said that, the rule would still be, yeah, do it. Do it. Because your brother told you to. He's your guest. And it's like, well, that's weird. Now, I don't know how that would work it, uh... in, in that I don't, I don't know if homosexuality ever happened. I don't know. I mean... Ritually, I'm sure it happened. I'm I don't not, know. I don't but it, that does explain a little bit because there was a lot of incest stories here, or mm-hmm. specifically stories to avoid incest, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so for instance, we've got a creation myth here, right? In the beginning of this words, in the beginning, the supreme goddess Adi Shakti laid three eggs in a lotus. From these three eggs emerged the three worlds and the three gods, Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva. Desire awoke in the heart of the goddess, who asked the gods to make love to her. But you are our mother, said Brahma and Vishnu, and they shied away. And the goddess, she was angry at being rejected, and so she reduced those two gods to ashes by casting a glance at her fiery third eye. And then she turned to Shiva, who agreed to make love to her, but only if she gave him the eye. And so she did. And then instead of making love to her, Shiva reduced her to ashes and revived the other two gods. Mm. And so then Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva decided to uh, populate the world with living beings, but they couldn't do it without you know, wives. So they gathered the heap of ashes that was once their mother, Adi Shakti, divided it into three parts, and then with the power of the third eye, created the three goddesses, Saraswati, Lakshmi, and Gauri. And then the three goddesses married the three gods, and together they populated the cosmos with all manner of plants, animals, and other living things, including gods, demons, and humans. Mm-hmm. So in the beginning, there was there was incestuous desire. Right. And then it's destroyed 
but from the remnants of is created the new wives. Right. So, so, you know, it's a, it's a thing. And, and, um, this is, uh, in other incest is in other creation stories as well. So I've got this other one. Um, Well, we talked about this pretty extensively. Well, maybe it wasn't extensive. I'd have to go back and listen, but at least mentioned it in the Egyptian episode. Almost all of those pairs of gods were brother sister pairs. Yeah, that's it's very common in in deities to be related to your mate. We've said what we've said in the past is there is no incest among gods. Right, but that's not true in Hinduism. There is incest in Hinduism. Yes, and oftentimes it's avoided and derided. Uh, so, so I've got another creation story here uh, with Brahma. So, in the beginning, a lotus bloomed. Within sat Brahma. He opened his eyes and realized he was all alone. Afraid, he sought the origin of the lotus he sat on. It emerged from the navel of Vishnu, who slept on the coils of the serpent Ananta Sesha on the surface of a boundless ocean of milk. Having been informed by Vishnu, Brahma set about creating living things. Uh, so he was alone, and he was longing for company, so he created children. He created four men molded out of his thoughts, and he asked his mind-born sons to multiply, but they refused and disappeared. And he couldn't—he was, he was confused about why that was, <laughs> and he came to the conclusion that it was— uh, his sons were boys. So he created seven more sons, and this time he created men. Mm-hmm. Um, and— they were willing to populate the cosmos, but they didn't know how. And so then Brahma, he, he pondered this question until he saw a vision of Shiva, whose left half was a woman. And so inspired by this, Brahma split himself in two, and from his left half, he created a woman. Such was the woman's beauty that desire rose in the heart of Brahma and his sons. Desire took the form of Kandarpa, the winsome god of lust, who rode a parrot and aroused the five senses by shooting his five flower-tipped arrows with his sugarcane bow, and then overwhelmed by yearning to embrace this woman, not uh, Kandarpa, to be clear. That was created from their lust. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, overwhelmed by this embrace, uh, you know, they spurted semen and began to multiply. (laughs) yeah 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 so i think it's pretty obvious that like in basically every culture casual incestuous relationships are like not accepted Mm -mm. um it just struck me that in this specific ritual practice it was okay and that that i think is the difference is they're like incest in ritual is fine because the ritual is more important than the relationship. Well, so this is where it's confusing, right? Because it is and isn't fine. So here's the next part. Brahma saw the first woman he had created, his daughter, and was overwhelmed by desire. The daughter circled her creator with reverence. Not wanting to lose sight of her beautiful form, Brahma sprouted four heads, each facing a cardinal direction. The daughter, disgusted by her father's display of unbridled lust, rose to the sky. Brahma popped a fifth head atop the other four and voiced his carnal intentions. Brahma's mind-born sons howled in horror at the misconduct of their father. 
From the howl emerged Rudra, who wrenched off Brahma's fifth and most lustful head with his sharp claws. Brahma was thus subdued by violence. And this was to, uh, this was, uh, used in the book to, to talk about how, um, you know, over time, uh, things become corrupted and Mm -hmm. then death is required. Yeah. Well, and so I would say this, this condemnation of incest here is independent of the ritual. And that's because one, this isn't a ritual. Yeah. Uh, it's just lust. So when you participate in this ritual, you know, if you if you manage to draw your sister's vest, yeah, it's you don't lust after your sister. That's not you didn't show up going. Mm, I hope I get my sisters. You know, nah. like if you did, that would be wrong. Yeah, and that's the point is that to want that casually, yeah, is wrong. Mm-hmm. But that's different from accepting that it happens in a religious ceremony. There was um. There's something about that. There's a kernel there that reminds me of another story. Not about incest, for once. <laughs> that's uh, good. If we could move on. If we be... could move on from that. Yeah. Uh, so this story is called Krishna's Rasa Leela from the Gita Govinda. Rasa on full moon nights in the meadows on the banks of the river Yamuna, Krishna would play his flute beckoning the milkmaids of his village. Mm-hmm. They would come secretly, risking their reputations, and make her circle around him and dance to his tune, losing themselves completely in the performance. When this happened, it seemed to each milkmaid that Krishna danced with her alone. Sometimes the milkmaids boasted that Krishna belonged to them and only them. When this happened, Krishna would disappear, making the women experience the pain of separation. Krishna would only return when this need to possess him was abandoned. And uh, basically, like, you know, Krishna's the universe, and every individual person is an individual person. You are a part of the universe. The universe is not a part of you. And so if you, so to to boast that the universe is yours, it, it, yeah. it separates to, you from the take, universe. To try to take possession of existence. Yeah. You can't. Yeah. And when you do, you will find that existence is not what you wanted it to be. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's uh, Krishna and the gopis is like a real famous Krishna story. Gopi is the milkmaids. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, but yeah, there's that there's a, a specific story that's like the night this happens and, and there's a woman that he takes with him. Um. And all the other gopis are like super upset because he's disappeared and they see two pairs of footprints, one are his, one are this woman's. And they're like, oh, my God, this super lucky woman. We're so mad and jealous of her. And then they find her. And as soon as they see her, like he has now left her because she was like, you're just mine. And he's like, nope. Um, And leaves her in the forest. They find her. And as soon as they see her, then they feel sorry for her. They're like, oh, no, she's been abandoned by Krishna, just like all of us. We have to find him. We miss him so much. But that's a, a very famous Krishna story, it, especially the idea that he, he sort of multiplies himself so that he's dancing with every single woman, and they all only think it's just them. Um, there's also in some versions of the story that this dancing uh, excites them to erotic levels and fulfills them, Yeah, which is to say they all orgasm from dancing with Krishna. Yeah, I can see uh, that. Yeah. And then it I mean all these are like these are married women, these are women with families. Yeah. 
but there's no shame in them doing it. There's only shame. Well, Krishna's on, the universe on their side. That's what I'm saying. Is they feel shame, and Krishna's like, "Don't. Everything's fine. Yeah, everything's okay. Go home to your families and your husbands. Don't be ashamed of what you did. Everything's fine." And that that kind of explanation only works when you take it. In fact, like, well, Krishna wasn't a literal person, person yeah. that did this to these women. Because if he was, I don't know. I think cheating on your husband, you should be a little shamed. Uh, <laughs> you should feel bad about that. <laughs> even, even if that was with God. Um, you know, I think, uh, I think if Jesus was like, you had sex with me, that's fine. No, it's not. No, it's not. That's not fine. Not that I, I don't... Jesus wouldn't ask that, but that's uh, not the point. <laughs> uh, jumping around a bit, because none of my stories are really like linked to each other as yeah. such. Um, this well, one, the, the thing about the Hinduism is that they are. Well, sure. They're all linked. They're all in linked. In so many spider-webbing ways. Sure. That it's very confusing. In it, There's just so much background to it all you all know right, like so you, got, in, you got the the four vedas you got to know all those you've got the ramayana the mahabharata the bhagavad gita and others all the upanishads you know you like you have these to are know. all these are all books and stories yeah yeah, yeah. And this poems. is this is all the material yeah. that contains what we know of the hindu and that's not counting like the discussions that have been written about it by yogis and rishis and all of the different explorations of what they mean. I mean, there's just so much there. So with that in mind, um, I have a tangentially related story um, explaining why a specific temple takes donations. Okay. So this is donations for Venkateshwara from the Tirumalai Shthala Purana. Lakshmi... Uh, was so angry with her consort Vishnu that she left his celestial abode, Vaikuntha, and came down to earth. To woo her back, Vishnu came down too. But Lakshmi, who had taken up residence at Karavirapura, was too angry to return. Until she calmed down, Vishnu decided to take up residence at Tirumalai whose seven hills reminded him of the seven hoods of Adi Sesha, the serpent of time, on whose coils he rested at Vaikuntha. To reside on the hills of Tirumalai, Vishnu had to marry the local princess. To marry her, he had to pay a heavy bridal price. Without Lakshmi, the goddess of wealth, by his side, Vishnu had no money. <laughs> so he took a loan from Kubera, the treasurer of the gods. Until he repays this loan, Vishnu cannot leave his residence atop Tirumalai. As the lord of the hill, he is revered as Venka Teshwara. So as Venka Teshwara at Tirumalai, which is where this temple is, mm -hmm. this is the explanation for why people make donations there. We're trying to pay back Vishnu's debt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that he can go home. Yeah. That's funny. That's good. Oh, that was a good one. That's yeah. a fun little myth. Mm -hmm. uh, let's see. I've got a few more that I thought was fun. Let's see. Ooh, this is a good one. It's a, It explains the uh, phases of the moon. Okay. So this is called uh, Chandra and the Nakshatras from the Samnashthala Purana. The moon god Chandra was married to 27 daughters of the priest king Daksha, but he preferred only one, Rohini. 
Daksha warned Chandra to treat all his daughters equally. So when Chandra ignored this warning, Daksha cursed him to lose his potency and wither away. Distraught, Chandra invoked Shiva, who restored his potency. But it wasn't perfect, right? Mm -hmm. So the, the way it worked is Chandra had to agree to visit each of his wives at least once a month. So his potency waxes every time he approaches Rohini and wanes every time he moves away from her, thus explaining the cycle of the moon and yeah. how it waxes and wanes. Mm-hmm. I thought that was interesting. That is interesting. Uh, another exception to the general rule where the uh, celestial deity of the moon is a man mm-hmm. and not a woman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Usually the, the moon is a woman and the sun is a man. Mm-hmm. So I did think that was interesting. I've got a few others here that I thought were worth talking about. Let's see. This one is called... Uh, oh, yeah. Okay. Now I remember why I wanted to talk about these stories. So there's the, there was this idea in Hinduism about... So we talked a lot about uh, tantric rituals, right? Like... like rituals to do with eroticism and sex, but there was also like a polar opposite of that, right? Like the idea of there is power in chastity. There mm-hmm. is power in ignoring your um, your your physical desires, right? Yeah. So this one is called The Seduction of Rishya Shringa from the Mahabharata. Rishya Shringa's father never allowed him to see a woman. This enforced chastity made Rishyashringa so powerful that one day when a downpour drenched him, he cursed the skies and prevented rain from falling on the ground. The only way to break the curse was to make him lose his chastity and hence his powers. So King Loma Harsha sent his daughter Shanta to seduce the innocent sage. Rishyashringa succumbed in no time. With his power gone, it began to rain once again. <laughs> um, I think there's some pretty, uh, pretty compelling symbolism there for reproduction. Yeah, yeah. In the it's raining, which is good. That's that's how plants will reproduce, right? You need the water to sustain the mm-hmm. vigor of life on the planet. And here's this guy who's chast. But it's not of his own doing. It's been enforced on it. And so he curses this guy, and that dries out the world. Mm -hmm. Now, people outside that can see, well, that's obviously not good. So they introduced the the idea of sex to him, reproduction. And when he immediately succumbs, what happens? It rains. Life-renewing force is brought back to the world. So you you can't continue humanity while being chast. Yeah. Uh, there's another one about this hero, Skanda, who is the most hyper-masculine of heroes. He was a uh, Ayonija, someone not born of a womb, and who distanced them, they distanced themselves from women. Oh, man. Yeah. So this is the story of the birth of Skanda, who is, uh, he was the commander of the celestial armies, god of war, and lord of the planet Mars. Mm-hmm. That all checks out. Skanda was born of Shiva's semen, which had remained unshed for eons. As incubation in a womb would have made Skanda mortal, 
the gods ensured that Shiva shed his seed outside his consort's body. So fiery was the seed that even the fire god could not hold it. Neither Vayu, the wind god, nor Ganga, the river nymph, could cool it. Finally, the seed set up marsh on fire. Within the embers, the seed transformed into a six-headed child that was nursed by six forest nymphs called Kritikas. When he was barely six days old, the hypermasculine child was strong and virile enough to kill the demon Taraka. That's a manly man. That is a manly, manly man. I find it interesting, this idea that you can be a manly, hyper-masculine guy without sex. Yeah, that's that's an interesting one. That I guess it, it has something to do with the distancing in thought between war and love. Mm-hmm. Because the erotic whether it's love or ritual or, or whatever you want to call it, um, is very opposite war. And so I guess they, in my mind, they sort of developed this even in more than the Greeks would have with Ares, because even Ares was the romantic partner of Aphrodite. Yeah. Aphrodite was married to Hephaestus, but she cheated on him with Ares all the time. All the time. And and this is sort we of a more... In our first episode. A, yeah, a, a more distilled idea of like, no, 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 the god of war has no interest in reproductive action. That's creation. War mm-hmm. is strictly a destructive process. Mm-hmm. And so the deity that would oversee that sort of sphere of influence wouldn't want to have sex. Yeah. Well, so that's interesting too, because there's this there's this goddess called um Chinna Mastica. She is the goddess who embodies the rawness of uh, of nature, right? And mm-hmm. so she's a very violent and <coughs> sexual being. Um, because she she's represented as uh this headless woman she has a head but it's not connected to her body Mm -hmm. her head's usually on a platter that she holds and she consumes the blood from her torso and she will sit on top of a woman who is having sex on top and it's to symbolize like the rawness of sex and violence so i guess hinduism's confusing is what i'm trying to say to me it's it's very complicated. Um, one of the things that makes the Hinduism, I think, stand out from a lot of the things that we've talked about previously is that most of what we have talked about previously isn't still practiced today as far as religion. And that, is, that's, is not seriously yeah. considered as a philosophical treatise on anything, mm-hmm. whereas Hinduism is. Yeah, we said this was going to get tricky because once we get into Eastern cultures, these are still practiced religions. So I'm trying to be respectful. I just don't understand. And Hinduism is also, at least in its root form, older than most of those, if not all of them. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the one that comes the closest, well, I guess Egyptian would be older, but it also kind of died out sooner. Um, But but Hinduism is probably as old, if not older, than any of the Greek thought. Mm Mm-hmm. And so it's had this, I mean, 5,000 years of continuous development. There's a lot more nuance to it than in a lot of the 
things we've talked about so far just because of that. I mean, just because it's been continuously looked at, studied, rewritten, studied more, further refined, like these ideas further abstracted, more differentiated. So, and then, and that I think really comes to the front when it comes to things like the God of War, the God of War in Greek culture being a little bit more personable, a little bit more relatable. Whereas in, in Hinduism, they've really abstracted the idea to such a pure essence that it's like, it is this very exclusively male instinct. It's a male activity. There, there isn't much essence of femininity in war, but they separate war from violence. Mm -hmm. Those are different. War is sort of an organized violence on behalf of a group. Yeah, they talk about that because Dharma is it's it's a social hierarchy imposed on nature. Yes. Yeah, uh, I've got another yeah. one here. It so this is this one talks about how Dharma is really an ideology that's only for men. Women, irrespective of their caste, there for them there is only something called Sri Dharma. In other words, obedience to men. Okay, so this story is called Jvetaketu's Law from the Mahabharata. Jvetaketu saw his mother in the arms of another man. When he complained to his father, he was told, All women are free to do as they wish. Horrified by this statement, Jvetaketu realized that it was thus impossible for any man to know who his biological father was. Jvetaketu was determined to set things right, so he decreed that henceforth a woman could have sexual relations only with her husband or with whomever he selected. Which I think is a load of bullshit, <laughs> frankly, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> well, uh, I don't know who I would select other than myself for my wife to have sex with. Mm. Um that said, I think I'm I'm on the sun side here. Uh, don't be doing that. <laughs> I, just, I just don't think you should do that. Um, not good. Not good. <laughs> that's a very cavalier husband. That's all I'm saying. It's you know, like, if that's fine. if that's how they're happy, it's fine. I guess good for them. I <laughs> I don't think that's good though. Um, there was also some interesting. There was a more on this there was um because there was this story and a few others was the beginning of like trying to in establish that uh patriarchy right mm -hmm. so that we've got so so uh the pandava those were the five sons right yeah. so they all shared one wife yes and that was fine until this started to happen when they were trying to establish this patriarchy. And the, so then they had to kind of like figure out a way to justify that, like why this yeah. was the case. And so this, this I thought was just a really funny explanation of, of how that happened. Arjuna, one of the Pandavas, won Draupadi's hand by winning an archery contest. Mm -hmm. He returned home and told his mother, guess what I won? And without even turning back, she replied, whatever it is, share it with your brothers. And so the obedient Arjuna, therefore, shared his wife with his four brothers. Yes. Which I yes. just, <laughs> yeah. the idea of that, just like, I don't care. Just share it with your brothers. <laughs> <laughs> whatever it is, I don't want to hear any fighting about it. 
I don't want to hear. He won't share. Share with your brothers. Yeah. Uh, there, there was another attempt to explain explain that marriage. Yeah. Uh, which was Shiva blesses Draupadi. Mm-hmm. So Shiva was pleased with Draupadi's devotion and offered her anything she wanted. And so Draupadi wanted a husband with five qualities. She said, I want a husband who is noble, who is strong, who is a skilled warrior, who is handsome, and who is wise. And Shiva misunderstood her wish and was like, so be it. You will have five such husbands. Yeah. So, so each, each of the brothers embody really one of those mm-hmm. qualities. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Rather than one that embodies all five. Yeah. I, I just think the, uh, the, the Hindu marital relationship is a lot more complex than, than the traditional Western one, which is a little bit more clear cut. It is. <laughs> Restrictive, though it may be. Simpler. <laughs> Easier to understand, for sure. Uh, with the rise of patriarchy, women were expected to do what their husbands told them. Those who obeyed were deified. Those who did not were demonized. Narratives reflected a carrot-and-stick approach, uh, such as this one, Vrinda's Chastity, from the Shri- Shiva Purana. Vrinda's chastity cast a shield of invulnerability around her husband, Jalantara. This made him invincible in battle. Distressed, the gods sought the help of Vishnu, who seduced Vrinda by taking the form of her husband. That sounds familiar. Mm-hmm. By the time Vrinda realized that the man who posed as her husband was an imposter, it was too late. She had lost her chastity, and her husband lost the shield of invulnerability. He was killed by the gods... And she became a widow. Yeah. These, I don't know. I I just I can't comment too much on these, just because my own view of marriage. I'm like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't don't cheat on your husband. Don't cheat on your husband. I mean, my wife doesn't cheat on me, and I'm not invulnerable. So sure. I feel a little slighted there. I guess I just, I find it interesting because there was this idea that um, sex wasn't exclusive to your spouse as long as it was consensual. Right. But then as this patriarchy in society was established, women were subjugated. And then their stories started to reflect that. And I just found it interesting. And personally, I find it unfortunate because I I prefer the idea that people can just do as they please as long as their spouses are fine with it. Yeah, well, and that's that's really how it's always been, and I would argue that today still is. Yeah. Um, I think more the story is illustrating the social mm-hmm. uh, impact of that, which is to say, if your husband says you can have sex with another man, Obviously, there's nothing your husband is going to do to you for doing it. Like he's saying, yeah, you you can do that. And the same way, if your wife says you can have sex with another woman, then you can do that without any sort of uh, backlash from your wife. But that's not the case for society at large. Mm Mm-mm. Even if your wife's like, yeah, you can totally go have sex with a woman. Society will judge Other people, you. if they find out you do that, will be like, ugh. Mm. Like, there's, there's going to be judgment. There's going to be stigma. There's going to be negative consequences. And I yeah. think that's more because typically the gods are going to symbolize society or yeah. the rules of society or the spirit of 
mankind as a collective. Well, I mean, they had to have their stories reflect their society. I mean, that's right. true and, of every And mythology. so I think that story is less like women can't have sex with people outside of their marriage and more it's your husband is going to take solace in the fact that you are a true and good wife. And if you are not, that will destroy him. It's it's going to be very upsetting for him. Um, now, it is unfortunate in that it's she was tricked, literally yeah. tricked by the primal male. Yeah, kind of like in uh, the Morte Arthur. Um, that's what I. That's how yeah. it sat, felt but, familiar. But to me. that could that could be read as like the spirit of masculinity seduced her. So it may not have been Vishnu specifically, but just like this very manly man that reminded her of her husband seduced her, which is a much more human response. You'd be like, yeah, I mean, I could see how she would falter there. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't condone it. It's definitely still bad, which is why there is still a punishment, but it's understandable. Yeah. All right. So I've got uh, one final story here about um, how, how a person can become a God. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is the story of Harishandra from the Bhagavata Purana. Harishandra was a righteous king, good enough to be a god. To test him, Rishi Vishwamitra put in his path a series of challenges. Vishwamitra tricked the king into giving up control of his kingdom. When rendered destitute, the righteous king left his palace with his wife Taramati and his son Rohita. Just as Harishandra was about to leave the city, Vishwamitra stopped him and said, You gave me rights over your city, but what about the ritual gift you are obliged to give a rishi for accepting your offering? A king of your status must give at least a thousand gold coins. Failure to do so will demonstrate to the world that you do not respect dharma. Determined to uphold the law of righteous conduct, the penniless Harishandra sold himself, his wife, and his son on the slave market and gave the sage the gold coins. Harishandra was thus reduced to the position of a chandala, keeper of crematoriums, the lowest rank in the Hindu caste hierarchy. Which I thought was a little bit strange that the keeper of crematoriums is the lowest rank. But, you know, anyways. It it would seem to be probably the least desirable job. I guess. It's, it's your job to keep all the dead bodies and burn them. Mm-hmm. And it's like, ugh, I don't want to do that. His wife became a maid and a concubine of a priest. Vishwamitra was still not convinced that Harishandra was meritorious enough to be a god. <laughs> so he subjected the former king to another test. He caused Harishandra's son to die of a snake bite. When Taramati brought the corpse to the crematorium, Harishandra wept, but he refused to cremate the child until the fee of cremation had been paid. But his wife had no money. Then give me the clothes you wear, otherwise our child will not be cremated. Taramati, though shocked by his adherence to the rules, obeyed. As she began disrobing, all the gods and sages of the cosmos appeared in the crematorium, amazed by the display of absolute adherence to Dharma. They decreed that Harishandra was fit to be a god. Yeah, so that's, I mean, that's probably the the starkest example you'll get of of the religion enforcing the social hierarchy, and it's like, Everything has gone wrong for this guy. Everything. But no matter how bad something is, if you follow the rules... Of Dharma. If you follow Dharma, even you could become a god. And so that... I mean, that's 
that makes it very easy to convince someone of a lesser rank, like, hey, stop trying to fight against this. That's not Dharma. That's not how you become a god. Just accept where you're at, do what you're supposed to do based on where you're at, and maybe things will go good for you. So, uh, I would say pretty effective. Yeah. As as even today, the caste system is still pretty. Yeah, still pretty, uh, pretty prevalent. Prevalent, still pretty strictly enforced, as I understand it. I I mean I don't think at this point it's government. No, enforced, it's, but socially, I yeah. mean, people. Yeah. Will just sort of like naturally segregate themselves. Now, now, as we've said, it's not just Hinduism. There's also Buddhism and Jainism. Yeah, uh, those yeah. are still prevalent in India and surrounding areas. Um, in Nepal, for instance. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So that's uh, those are our stories for uh, yeah. for um, best I could Hinduism. come up with. Hanuman. I think symbolizes human consciousness. Yeah. That's that's the best I could come up with. I don't I don't know that that's uh supported by by anything other than my own ideas. Um but he's mischievous. Mm-hmm. He's unpredictable mm-hmm. just like human. Maybe maybe human thought would be a better way to to explain it, but I think I think consciousness works. Um he can go anywhere in an instant. Yeah. Just like your thoughts can. He yeah. can fly. I mean, he could go literally anywhere. Um, he's strong. Yeah. Human thoughts are incredibly resilient. Yeah. Once you have a thought, it's very hard to get rid of it. It's true. Um, he shapeshifts. You know, he can transform. He can grow in size. He can shrink in size. Um, he's powerful enough to move mountains. These are all, all ways to conceptualize human consciousness or, or human thought. Um, but it is best used and uh, most beneficial when subservient to an ideal. Yeah. And, and so Rama is that ideal. He's Vishnu. He's the, he's the primal male. He's the, the main deity. And so when you devote consciousness and thought to the ideal image or the ideal person, then that's when your thoughts are that powerful. That's when they take on these aspects, is they become this force to be reckoned with. I liked your story. That's, I, I'm confused why my book didn't have really much mention of him. I, I, I don't know. I mean, outside of that bit of the Ramayana, he's not mentioned again. Oh, really? He isn't mentioned at any time before that. Mm-hmm. It's just when they're like, and then he got the Monkey King's help. And then he had this guy named Hanuman, and Hanuman was a son of the wind god, and super fast, and he went and found Sita, and he came back, and that, I mean that's like that's it. It's Hanuman's not even the main character; he's a supporting character mm-hmm. in this cast of the Ramayana. Sure. And so, like all this other stuff, I had to just kind of look up, like, all right, who's Hanuman? Where's this come from? Like the story of the mango was not in the Ramayana, mm-hmm. at least in this retelling of the Ramayana that I've read. I, this is not the actual Ramayana. Yeah, this, this is, is myths of the Hindus right. and Buddhists. It's, it's a prose sort of summary of the Ramayana. Mm-hmm. So there might be details in there that I have that maybe these were in the Ramayana. It's just not the version of it that I'd read. But. So yeah, uh, that was our uh, 
That was our Hindu episode. Maybe two. It, we, we went on for a couple hours. Yeah, it might be two. We could probably cut out the Graham Hancock stuff. <laughs> <laughs> could do. Could do. Uh, so next time we are going to be covering Les Mortes de Arthur, book two yep. of 21. Which is the, the book of Arthur. Which is, uh, book two is the story of Balin. Yes, the knight of the two swords, mm-hmm. or the knight with two swords. Yeah, so that's what we're going to be covering next time, and then after that, I guess we're going to cover Buddhism. Yeah, we do We do Buddhism. We can do Buddhism. Let's do that. <laughs> Since we said we were going to do that this time and realized that we shouldn't. That is far too much to try to cover. Yeah. I mean, look how long Hinduism took us. Yeah, it, yeah. Uh, yeah, so uh, I had fun. I hope you guys had fun. Thank you, Zach, for being here. Yeah. Thank you, Moonslate Media, for uh, providing us our equipment. Thank you, Chris, for running our equipment. Uh, thank you, Vidwest. Thank you, Vidwest, for uh, providing some of our equipment. And uh, thank you, Jake Weller, for our intro and our outro. Awesome music. So cool. Uh, listen to his album, Wasting Time. It's on Spotify. And I think it's in a few other places. Um, yeah. See you next time. Bye. Bye.